Amen. Well, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We are in verses 7 through 12 this morning. And it actually worked out quite nice so that we'd be in this passage today as we get ready to start the series on those various issues that we would desire to grow in over the next several Sunday nights. In a way, what we'll be doing in those eight topics is a specific treatment or a specific study that I think stems from the bigger principle uh, or bigger principles of passages like this one today in Matthew 7. Taking the things that we learn from God's Word, these principles that God has given to us in His sufficient words for for all life and godliness, and then and then running all of those things we want to grow in through that grid. And this principle that uh, we learn today from verses 7 through 11 could be said this way, if we wanted to say it in a sentence. When you want to change and grow, when you want to change and grow, ask Seek and knock. And by the grace of God, you will change and grow. And then as we're growing, and we, when we remember that it's by the grace of God that we're saved, that it's by the grace of God that we change and grow, we will then have a right Christ-centered, a gospel-grounded perspective that compels us to love others as the Lord first loved us. And so the first principle that we'll learn today in a sentence is, when you want to change and grow, ask, seek, knock, and by the grace of God, you will change and grow. And say, maybe not quite as fast as we always would like to, but God's promise, we're going to grow. We're going to grow. The second principle that we'll learn today in a sentence, is this. Christians who are mindful of where their change and growth come from will be loving toward others, even proactively. Okay? Christians who are mindful of where their change and growth come from will be loving toward others, even proactively. So let's dig into God's Word and and find these truths. Verse 7. Matthew 7, verse 7. Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Uh, Just a couple things to note here. Uh, First, It's helpful to know that the verbs ask and seek and knock, they're written in the Greek as present imperatives. So we could say them this way. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. It's not a one-time deal. Sometimes we wish we could just pray once and and all of our troubles and sinful habits would just go away, fly away, right? But Christ tells us here, ask and keep on asking. And this, this prayerful asking, seeking, knocking, in it we grow in our dependence on him as we ask, seek, and knock. Uh, D.A. Carson writes it this way, we ask in praying, Uh, with earnest sincerity, seeking, and with an active, diligent pursuit of God's way. 
That's the knocking. I think we could even add more to the mix. We could say uh, we ask in our prayer, and we seek the Lord in prayer and in the Word. We draw near to Him by hearing from Him in the Word. We draw near to Him through prayer. We hear from Him through our study of, of the Bible. And in our prayer, in our study, as we grow in our earnestness to, to see victory, to see change, we continue to knock, trusting that the door, through progressive sanctification, it will be opened in His good time. Now, there is a progression of intensity here. Do you see that? We see the need, and so we ask. And then we seek God and His answers. And as we seek, we knock, and we knock for resolution, for that change. As we see our need, as, as God graciously reveals to us the beam or the specks in our eye that we addressed last Sunday from verses 1 through 6, We ask God for repentance and growth. And as we keep asking, we seek Him diligently in His Word. And as we continue to seek Him, we knock repeatedly, knowing that He is good. Knowing that He has promised to complete the work that He started in us. Knowing that Jesus has commanded us to ask, seek, and knock, we ask, seek, and knock. And we can do so with eager anticipation, eager expectation of His gracious answer. And therefore, our victory. Our victory. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. This asking, seeking, and knocking is a command that comes with the promise of an answer. Jesus said, ask, and it will be given. Everyone who asks, now everyone there will see in the context, all of God's children. Everyone who asks, receives. Seek, and you will find knock, and it will be opened. These are promises from our sovereign Lord. That is great, great news. James 1.5 calls God a generous giver. A generous giver. And because he's God, we know that that storehouse for these good things that Jesus is promising, God's storehouse has an unlimited supply. No matter how much growth I may need, I cannot deplete his resources. God's not going to run out and say, well, I meant to do it for you, but you were, you were worse off than I thought. We're never going to run into that with the Lord. God has what I need to grow. That's encouraging. God gives what I need to grow. That gives us reason to be grateful. And God promises. He has it. He gives it. He promises it. That he'll provide what I need to grow. And that gives us confidence. And a confidence that's rightly rooted in Him. In Him. Now, just to be clear, we need to make sure that we understand the nature of what Jesus has just promised to His followers in these verses. Sometimes when we hear people referencing this passage, we hear that, ask and you shall receive. what, What are they talking about sometimes? Many have misused these verses to say that if you believe, if you have enough faith, God wants you to be prosperous, meaning wealthy by worldly standards. God wants you to be healthy. The the health and wealth thing. And this is sometimes called the prosperity gospel. Name it and claim it. Ask and you shall receive. 
But what happens when we pray for that new sports car and it doesn't come? Or, or far worse, we can get over that, right? Or far worse, what happens when a person prays for healing from cancer and it just doesn't come? Did they not have enough faith? Did that person refuse to receive what God was willing to provide? Was God just not true to his word? Because they asked, and they didn't receive. And we think about this, and I don't want to be harsh in this, but I do want to be accurate and truthful. If that's what that passage means, if that's what this passage means, then why are so many of the preachers and teachers in the prosperity gospel movement, the televangelists and the stuff that goes on with that, why do any of them die? Why aren't they being healed? If they have enough faith, this isn't good stuff. It's not good teaching. It's not good doctrine. Uh, really, it's, it's evil. It's evil. It's certainly not a right understanding of this passage at all. I remember this passage is part of a greater whole. Uh, namely, the Sermon on the Mount. We want to think about context. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And so we must interpret these promises in their context. And if we look back at the beginning of Matthew 5, what we will not find anywhere is a statement where Jesus says, Blessed are the rich in real estate. Or blessed are those with a continual clean bill of health. It's not there, is it? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been teaching his disciples that the characteristics of his disciples, that they'll be increasingly growing in are things like righteousness, sincerity, humility, purity, love for God, love for others. So it's clear to see what we need to understand is that Gifts such as these that Jesus has just communicated so far through this whole sermon. These are what we ask for, seek, and knock. That God would graciously gift them to us. And furthermore, the parallel passage of this teaching, where, where uh, Luke writes about this teaching in Luke 11, verse 13, he says it this way. Uh, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And if the Spirit is involved in this gifting and in the answer to our asking, seeking, and knocking, then we must conclude that the result of our asking and seeking and knocking are going to be things like the use of spiritual gifts for the good of the body of Christ. Uh, or growing in spiritual disciplines, or, or being increasingly controlled by the Spirit. The Spirit who is our helper. The Holy Spirit works to conform us in Christ-likeness. Does that make sense? Uh, these are the things that Jesus is talking about here. And here's some other passages that help us to confirm this understanding of the nature of these gifts, the things we'd pray for. First John chapter 3, verse 22 he writes, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The idea being that it's our desire, our desire to follow Christ produces in us these requests. We're praying for the things we're praying for because we want to follow Christ. 
not for personal consumption. We don't treat God as a, a genie. He's our Lord and Master. In James 4, 3, instead of, instead of saying, ask and you shall receive, James writes, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In 1 John 5, verse 14, it says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And I think this is more in the idea of God's directive will, as we see his will revealed in Scripture, the things that God is about, the things that God is working out, the way, the way that he has taught us in Scripture, that we would live according to his will, as opposed to the idea of saying, well, I think it's God's will to give me that car, and so I'm going to pray for it, and if it was God's will for me to get the car, then I'll get it. You see the difference there in that thinking? In Matthew six twenty four. Says, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be, he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And he says, you cannot serve God and money. These competing desires in our hearts. In a similar vein, James 1, 6 through 8 says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord, He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So if I'm serving my lusts, uh, following selfish feelings, and yet at times also trying to follow Christ, we're often in that zone more than we realize, right? But if I'm doing that, I'm going to be double-minded. I'll be unstable. It's going to be a struggle to see any growth. That makes sense. And it's by the grace of God in those times that we don't get what we ask for. Because we're asking amiss. We're asking for wrong things. And our Father loves us. Now, when we realize that this passage doesn't promise us the treasures of earth, it, it might get some of us down. It might get us down. But let me encourage you, don't let it get you down. What we want to do is exchange the passing glory of the things of this world, exchange them with the surpassing eternal glory of the Lord and and therefore treasuring the treasures of heaven where moth and rust will not destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. What God is gifting to us, what God promises to give to us is far, far better than anything else this world would have to offer that we might pray for. The treasures of this earth will never satisfy. And if we continue to seek our highest satisfaction in the treasures of this earth, our hunger, our thirst will only grow. Our desires will become obsessions. The ends start to justify the means. And we might even blame God for not giving us what we think we need to be, quote-unquote, happy. But God loves us. God loves us too much to cave in and try to keep us satiated by fulfilling those fickle desires. You know what I mean? Like sometimes when we're parenting our kids and we know what they want is not the best for them, but we really would like some peace and quiet. And so like, yeah, fine, whatever, take it. God loves us so much so that he wouldn't even do that. He wouldn't do that. 
He knows there are better things in store for us than the temporary stuff that we might tend to want. And we get to see that in verse 9 and following. Verse 9. Jesus continues, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Uh, Snakes were uh, unclean for the Jews to eat, so they weren't to eat those things. So the idea for both of these illustrations is that even an earthly father is going to love his child enough that when he's hungry and asks for something to eat, the dad's going to give him something he can eat. I think snakes probably like still unclean now, right? I mean, who wants to eat that anyways? But we're not gonna, not gonna give him a stone, not gonna give him some unclean, nasty snake. Verse 11 says, if you then who are evil, if earthly fathers who still sin know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your father who is in heaven Give good things to those who ask him. He's better. I think if we took a poll today of all the dads in the room and we asked, how many of you want to be a good dad? How many of you want to be a good dad? I think we'd have somewhere, you know, give or take, in the vicinity of about 100% of our men who, who would say, I want, to be, I want to be a good dad. Every dad here wants to be a good dad, or at least we'd hope so, of course, right? And yet, dads, we mess up sometimes, don't we? We mess up. Sometimes we can selfishly sin against our kids, our own kids. And sometimes, even when we think we're doing what is best for our children, we think we just know what we've got to do, we find out that we unknowingly gave them a snake or something like that. And when we do... We can ask them to forgive us and and move forward. Part of being a dad is also teaching your kids by example that they can be humble and admit when they are wrong and seek to make things right. But guess who never does anything wrong? Guess who always acts out of a right motive? He always wants for the right reason to do the right things and perfectly does it. Of course, that's our Heavenly Father. Our Heavenly Father. And if fathers like us here, fathers who still sin, who make mistakes like us, if if fathers like us have a desire to do the best we can for our children, then what kind of a father is God our Father? Not your neighbor's father. Some other kid's dad. Our Father. He's ours. And realize this is, this is not just an acknowledgement that God always knows what we need. He just knows it, so that's good. It is also the realization that God loves you and wants you to have the very best. That's part of parenting, right? We want our kids to grow up and have the very best, and we long for them in their adult years to succeed and do well and have joy. We want this for them, but we can't control it. (laughs) God wants the very best for us and has covenanted to make it happen, and he will do it perfectly. This is our Father, and this is God's heart for his children. 
So this is not some cold obligation to righteous living. God's in charge. He's just. He's perfect. You got to be good. Get to it. This is a sincere, fatherly love that compels the God of the universe to say no to his beloved children when they would ask for a snake or some sinful desire that would be to our harm. This is a sincere, fatherly love that compels God to call on us to ask, seek, and knock so that we'll learn through the asking, seeking, and knocking to draw near to him. God knows what the best thing he could possibly give us is, and it's himself. And so he says, draw near to me, child. This is a sincere fatherly love which is eager to say yes to a request that is for our good. This is a sincere fatherly love which, when paired with God's holiness, his righteousness, and so many other of his attributes, compels God to give us what is in accord with what he has promised to us. To complete the work that he started, to transform us from one degree of glory to another, to conform us to the image of Of Jesus Christ. And if the Father has set his love on you, you will be changed. You will receive it. Praise God for the great love with which he has loved us. In the next verse in this passage, verse 12, it might seem like it's a little out of place compared to verses 7 through 11. Or at least, like, it's just a different thought altogether. Like, maybe this should have been next Sunday or something like that. But it's actually not. In verse 12, we find what is often called the golden rule. Where it says, verse 12, So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is, this is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That just means the whole Old Testament. This rule is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. In this verse, we see the first word, so, which could have been translated just the same as, therefore. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, which means it's, it's referring to something that preceded. That's what the therefore is there for. And the verse is referring to our relationships and our actions with other people. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Verse 7 through 11, they were talking about our relationship with God. Jesus is talking about God, our Father, and me, or you, the hearer. About our own personal growth and our asking, seeking, and knocking, and his fatherly love, his fatherly love that graciously gives us that growth. So it would seem that the therefore wouldn't be talking about that. So what do we do with this? One of these is horizontal, one of them is vertical. It doesn't doesn't go together. What do we do with this? Well, let's keep going back in the chapter. Let's, Let's scroll back up. Scroll up. Move your finger up on your Bible there. What was the last time that Jesus was talking about the horizontal, our relationships with other people? And if we look up there, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, We see this teaching. This is last Sunday. Judge not that you be not judged. Dot, dot, dot. Later on, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So if verses 1 through 6 are about our interactions with others, 
And if verse 12 is about our interactions, relationships with others, why did Jesus seemingly just like plop this parenthetical statement? Like he's talking about our relationship with others. Oh, by the way, here's another thought about you and God and you asking him for his grace and him giving it to you. Uh, Oh yeah, and then we're back to others again. Why did he drop this parenthetical statement down here in verses 7 through 11 about our own growth, our own relationship with God in the midst of these commands? You get the idea what the question is here? Okay, put a pin in that. Keep that in mind. We'll get there in a minute. But first, let's get through verse 12. Let's look and see what we can learn from verse 12. At first, it might be surprising, but Jesus was not the first to communicate this rule, summing up the Old Testament, which is what the law and the prophets means. However, others used a negative form. So Jesus isn't the first one to say this kind of an idea, but everybody else who'd done it before used a negative uh, way of saying it. Uh, For instance, in AD 20, a man called Rabbi Hillel, he was being challenged by a Gentile who, being quite dramatic, I think, decided to stand in balance on one leg and challenge the rabbi to summarize the whole law before he lost his balance. That sounds like something ancient worldly that would go on, right? Like, what in the world? So this guy comes up, finds this rabbi. He's like, all right, dude, here we go. I got a challenge for you. Before I fall over, tell me everything about the—I can't even do that long. Tell me everything about the Old Testament before I fall. So I don't know, maybe he like looked inside and thought, well, his legs look pretty strong. He might last a while. I might be able to get a paragraph in or something. But this was the challenge that this guy was given. And here was his response. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is commentary. End quote. That's what he said. Basically this. Don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. You see how that's a negative version of what Christ said? Don't do stuff that you wouldn't want people to do to you. Jesus, though, takes this to the proactive. Do what you wish that others would do to you. So this is not just a forbidding of evil acts against others. It's also a commanding of loving acts for the benefit of others. Now think of the Good Samaritan here. The Good Samaritan. When that priest and the Levite walked, they saw their brother who was hurt and beaten and left on the side of the road. Remember what they did? They walked to the other side of the road to avoid the situation. They passed by their brother who had been robbed and left devastated. They were following their version of the golden rule. They kept it. Because it's not like they robbed him. They didn't do something to him that they wouldn't want somebody to do to them. So maybe what we should call that version maybe is like the fool's gold. Fool's golden rule. But the Samaritan, he actually kept the golden rule. Because he proactively went and loved that Jew and helped him get back on his feet, didn't he? This is what Jesus is calling us to do. Also, notice the verse says that we are to do whatever you wish others would do, not what you expect them to do. So this is not us thinking, well, they would never do that for me, so. Or they've never done anything like that for me. That information matters not. However we wish 
they would treat us. That's how we are to go about treating them. Even when there is no prospect of payback. We could say this, the golden rule is just another way to say, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul writes it this way in Galatians 5, verses 13, 14. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law, remember Jesus says this is the law and the law and the prophets. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, Back at the beginning of this message today, I said there were two major principles in this passage. The first was this, when you want to change and grow, ask, seek, and knock. And by the grace of God, progressively, you will change and grow. We saw that in verses 7 through 11. And we also saw that verses 7 and 11 are serving here as a, a parenthetical statement. Jesus has inserted this thought, these truths about where our growth comes from in the midst of these two sets of commands in verses 1 through 6 and verse 12. Verses 1 through 6, we're warned of self-righteous judgmentalism. Verse 12, we're taught to love our neighbors as ourselves. So the glue that holds those two ideas together, the motivation to get the log of self-righteousness out of our eye, the fuel we need to love people selflessly and proactively, it's found in verses 7 through 11. You know, God has loved us sacrificially in a very proactive way. Even while we were yet sinners at enmity with God, he showed his love for us by sending Christ to die in our place suffering the wrath that we deserve there at the cross. God gave Christ to be our substitute, and it is entirely by his grace that we are saved. By God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we have been rescued and adopted. We have become the children of God. And God, in his fatherly love, also graciously grants us spiritual growth as we ask, seek, and knock, as we grow to become more like Christ. And part of that genuine growth is an acknowledgement of our own inability and God's ability. And therefore, we're rightly humbled. We're humbled in a great way, in a good way. We didn't deserve God's love. We didn't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, and and we're still growing today. There's still room to grow. So then we put that gospel-minded, gospel-grounded, Christ-centered truth into the realm of our relationship with others. Those two things don't exist in different boxes. Okay, God saved me. I'm good to go. Now these other people, what am I going to do with them? No, this feeds into what we do with them. Okay? We put this gospel thinking into the realm of our relationship with others, and and it causes us to think, who am I to judge? My brother or sister in Christ? Or even the lost, for that matter. 
am I really better, a superior life form, than them? I may be more spiritually mature than them by the grace of God, but that should drive me to want to love them and help them to grow too, to point them to the same place where I've gotten my salvation and my growth. It certainly doesn't give me a right to berate them, to hate or despise. What it ought to result in is a heart of compassion, an urgency for their well-being. We want to love them for their good. And if God proactively loved me, when I would have hated him, well, now I, the benefactor, recipient of God's love, now I can love others. Because he first loved me. And even though I'm growing to love God more now, even that is a work of his grace. So I I can take this never-ending, bottomless love that God has given to me proactively, and I can share it proactively with others. Even if there's no paybacks. Even if they may never do the same for me. We don't have to worry one bit about that. Because when Christians are mindful of where their salvation, where their change and growth have come from, we can and we will be loving toward others, even proactively. And by the way, how much more fun is that anyways? How much more fun is that? I think when we, when we do kind deeds for people and then... We start the timer. Uh huh. Still waiting. Still, you saw what I did for you, right? Should I write you a card and let you know it was me? When are you gonna When are you gonna do something nice for me? Boy, if that's how we live and interact with each other, even if they do something nice back for us, all the best we get out of that is it's about time. That's not fun. <laughs> that's kind of irritating, right? We have greater joy in loving others the way God loves us. That's where we get our greatest joy. That's where we can have the most fun, even in this life, in this world. And we know this. God doesn't give his children snakes. He only gives us what he knows is best. And so we can love others in the way that is best. As it says in Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, I'm going to read this verse as we close. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Being God's beloved children, let's be like our dad. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. This is a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you this morning, we are reminded it is right for us to be ever so thankful. Knowing that you have loved us in such a proactive way. In our desperation, in our sinfulness, our spiritual death, our deadness, you came and rescued us through the blood of Jesus Christ. So God, we thank you 
uh, again, for the wonderful privilege that we have to be called your children, that we would be able to call you our Father, that we would have through the shed blood of Christ access to your throne, that we can come and ask and seek and knock and know that your storehouses are ever faithful, ever full to meet our need and to grant us these precious promises that you've made. God, I pray that in this uh, right humility, in this right joy, in this right understanding of who you are and who we are, God, that you would uh, well up in our hearts a greater love and a desire to see others benefit from the same glorious grace and love that we've received from you. That we would be imitators of you, that we, your people, would love others the way you love us. And God, we thank you. This is joy. This gives us joy. This gives us rest, even in the midst of some hardships on this earth in this life. So God, we pray that you would work these things into our hearts, that uh, by your Spirit, we ask and we, as we seek and we knock, Lord, that you would grow in us this love, this burden for the lost, this desire for unity and growth amongst the saints together here in our church. Lord, we pray that you'd use us in this way for your glory and for our good. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.